0: we recognize the way we benefit from racism and white supremacy, this should be the minimum expected of us to actually challenge and confront
1: I'm Leila Saad and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing change makers and culture shapers who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Hi everybody and welcome back to Good Ancestor Podcast. Today for episode two of Good Ancestor Podcast, I'm speaking with No White Saviors, specifically Olivia Alasso and Kelsey Nielsen from No White Saviors. Olivia and Kelsey are both trained social workers who have worked in the field for years. Olivia is born and raised in Uganda. Kelsey has spent around five years in country working in various capacities. No White Saviors started as a joint outlet to see many of the harmful aspects of white saviorism in Uganda exposed. Coming from two very different experiences with a common goal, Olivia and Kelsey work together to confront the issues surrounding global racism and white supremacy. I'm really excited to speak with both Olivia and Kelsey today. Welcome to the podcast, first of all. I'm so happy to have you here.
0: We're excited. You've been an inspiration, I know, for our work from the beginning. And you were actually one of the first, I think, people with a bigger platform to really share our work. So that has meant a lot to
2: us.
1: Well, it's incredible to see the work that you are doing and how it is educating, but also really activating, like you're really taking action. And we're going to talk about what that looks like during this conversation. But before we dive in, I want to begin with our very first question. And you can choose whoever's going to go first. Our first question is, who are the ancestors living or transitioned, familial or societal, who have influenced you on your journey? Uh, Do I
3: need to introduce myself?
1: Yes, please, Olivia. Go ahead. Yes.
3: All right. I'm Olivia Alasto and I'm a co-founder of the No White Saviors, and I'm based in Uganda, and then I'm a social worker by profession. I've worked in the NGO sector. I grew up in Jinja, a town which is not very many white people, so I always have so much to talk about when it comes to my hometown because I've seen so much, and what I would say about the answers, I think in Africa, we have so many people that have looked up there's Nelson Mandela. I always want to start with Nelson Mandela because he started there. He's one pastor on the African continent that started this movement. And to me, as a Black woman or a Ugandan woman, it takes me back to history. And I think so much on what Africa as a continent has been through and, and how we've suffered through the white-savirism and how the white-savir complex has incorporated itself in our way of life, coming way back from apartheid in South Africa and also colonization in Africa. So Nelson Mandela is a father figure. That's one person that I really look up to now that he is dead, but still his biggest lives on. And also I always want to give South Africa because in Africa, it is where we saw a lot of discrimination with color, with our say race, and also the different areas. So I always look up to people in South Africa like Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela, Stephen Biko, because this is where it all started. Then it spread back on the African continent. It started from South Africa, and then the world, now Africa as a whole, started opening up to the Kwame Nkrumahs in Ghana, to uh, Julius Nianen in Tanzania, to Patrice Lumumba in Congo, so the people that I look at right now, most of them are gone, but then that legacy that they have left behind, and when we go back to history, and what they have done, and how they have resisted, and to what extent, and what is left for us now, Mm -hmm. as the new generation, I'll go to the female side of people who have really inspired me, there's Winnie Mandela, and she's also gone right now, but her fight as a woman in the struggle to see that there's equality of black people and white people in South Africa is, is phenomenal. Like, there's no way I can really explain that, how a woman would sacrifice everything, her life, her youthful age, her life, to, to struggle to see that there is this equality between black people and white people. though so it is still continuing, still we're seeing this happen that the discrimination is is not gone anywhere it's still happening in South Africa so women like that have also inspired my journey those are my ancestors and also the modern presidents female presidents that we have like Johnson Salif she did a lot in West Africa Joyce Banda and I don't want to always look at people who are not on the continent because I want to start with home. These are people who should inspire me to uh, to go far. Old. Since I was a child, I looked up to these big names, and I used to hear of Nelson Mandela, but I'm like, who is Nelson Mandela? What did he do? So, like, studying through academia and getting to know who they were and what they did and how they moved our continent from the dark days to the light days that we see now. So I can't say that we are done with all the dark days. They're still here, they're still here, they do exist. There's some bit of light they brought in for us to see. So such figures right now, as we do this work, when I look up to them, I say there was much they laid out and they left a legacy. And wherever they are, they would want us to move on to move from where they stopped so that we could continue from there. And in case, in case one day we leave, we leave the world, what do we leave? We leave other people taking on this. So this is a struggle that will continue and continue for generations because we don't know if one day, one time, Kelsey and I will be equal in the actresses. I don't think. It's going to be a continuous process. like, since way back, So such people, I always want to begin with home before I jump into the Martin Luther King. I want to begin with people on the African continent that I feel inspire my journey and make me feel that I was designed to also stand and represent my people because if they did it, then I can also do it. Yeah, basically that's... I look up to the African people because I know Africa's come a long way, and we are still here, and we have so much to offer, and through our ancestors, we are able now to come up and stand up and speak, you know? We didn't have this voice so many years ago, but because they showed us that we can also lead the black movement, we can stand and say, "No, know what, guys, this is wrong, as black people, as African people, we don't agree with what you're saying because they have laid that foundation for us. So this inspires me every day because because of the voices that I hear in my ears, I'm like, okay, I know I can also do this. I can mm-hmm. represent my people. I can speak for them. And the world will listen to me. So yeah, those good melodies that almost say, but what happened in those years, guys were really strong. They gave it... Yeah, oh, so I can still do the same. And that's why I feel they inspire me every day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. I literally got chills when you said I think you said something like, I was designed to stand. Mm -hmm. And if they could do it, I can do it. Thank you for saying that. Thank you. That was beautiful. Thank Thank you. you. Kelsey, your turn.
0: What an interesting question being white, right? (laughs) Because our ancestors in terms of, like if I look at my actual blood ancestors, right, there's an unlearning and a reconciling that needs to happen when you start to unpack the realities of the blood shed to get us to the level of the privilege that we experience and the benefit we experience under white supremacy. So understanding that whether it was my direct grandfather or my direct relative that I have benefited from people who look like me, my ancestors, in a very heinous way. And so I look at that and think, I don't celebrate the forefathers of America. I don't celebrate 4th of July. I don't celebrate holidays that were built on genocide and colonization and, slate and the transatlantic slave trade. What I do celebrate is I celebrate the Black revolutionaries that I've learned from, the only reason I know what I know and am able to do what I do is because of the education that's been provided from Black people in my life who I've grown up around and from Black revolutionaries through lectures, through literature, through through a constant learning. And, and so I think some of the ancestors by source of inspiration of like the revolutionary work that they've done is uh, women like Sister Soldier. She is someone I feel like she wrote a lot of fiction, but in terms of her work, um, especially as a young black woman who was able to bridge work in the community and academia and was able to do it in a way that was so unapologetic and so unrelenting in the sense that like, it didn't matter if she was in a room full of some of the most prestigious politicians and academics and even the president of the United States. I remember a time where she had called out Bill Clinton And just the way that she was able to just say, I remember the clip where she talked about good white people and how she's like, to be a good white person means you have to be willing to give up some power and that she had never met someone like that. And I remember watching that and listening to that and thinking that is exactly the kind of, the straightforwardness, the truth and the like, there's no time, the level of harm and violence that white supremacy has caused. The way that we, and when I say we, me included, have been complicit in that. Um, There's no time to mince words. There's no time to say it delicately. There's no time to ease into it. I feel like we need the sister soldiers. We need people who are willing to just be direct. And so Women Like Her, Asada Shakur has been a huge inspiration. You look at the level of organization and commitment that went into not only like the organizing she did before the FBI and the U.S. government pinned that murder of that New Jersey officer on her, but then they organized to, to bust her out of jail. They organized and kept her in hiding before they got her to Cuba. And just even the way, like she's still out, she's still in Cuba. They have a $2 million, I think, a reward on her head. She's still on the FBI's most wanted list. And she's, I think she is such an example of like the revolutionary work and the risk involved. And like the, the fact that like there was never a question it seemed in her writing and just the way she talks about, there was never a question in her mind that this, this was worth the risk. So yeah, I think for too long, we have expected and only relied on black revolutionaries to, dismantle and confront white supremacy, and it's really about damn time for us to take responsibility and to put real, real risk out there. And this is not on some like martyrdom, but like, if you really understand the harm and violence white supremacy has caused, and, like for me, it's like a no question, because I'm like, there are Black people, Bolivia and many people here in Uganda, but also people back home that I love dearly, that I'm like, if I really understand the harm that white supremacy is causing, This is like the bare minimum that should be expected is to really challenge it head on and to do the work internally, but also externally, regardless of what the risk is, because there's so many people benefiting from white supremacy. This is not going to be like a a comfortable thing. This is not going to be a thing that, you know, obviously threats of lawsuits or lawsuits in general that can happen in this work. There's a lot of people don't like us and don't like the work that we do, and that's okay that comes with the territory. But to me, especially being a white person doing this work, there's no amount of like, oh, is this hard? No, this is the bare minimum, man. Like if we recognize the way we benefit from racism and white supremacy, this should be the minimum expected of us to actually challenge and confront it. Mm -hmm. So I know that was probably a very, I wasn't as direct as I wanted to be, um, but Sister Soldier and Asada were the two that came to mind when you asked about ancestors. They're two incredible women that have given me a ton of inspiration and motivation,
1: yeah. Thank you, thank you for sharing that. What really struck me as you were speaking is, in this work, it is often black women who are taking the biggest hits, who are leading, who are able to lead, but who are also taking the biggest hits, making the biggest sacrifices. But also it really struck me how you see yourself as a white person and consider your ancestry, both your own personal one and collectively, And it's, again, it's black women who are the inspiration, whether they're in hiding, have passed already, they're still the ones that we're we're looking to. And that's the kind of like weird dichotomy for me, where it's like globally, black women are at the bottom of the pile and yet are often the ones working the hardest and taking the most hits. Mm. I see you nodding your head, Olivia, like, huh? Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's the truth. What comes up for you as you think about that?
3: Uh, when I think about that, I think that for so long, the voices of Black women have not been lifted. And we can see this in so many spaces. When we come to the NGO, I well, want to give that example because I know what happens there. Even if you have something to say to a Black woman, and you're in this structure that has a lot of whiteness, no will listen to you. Yeah. Much as you have the skill, the knowledge, and you are much, much better than this white person, they will not listen to you. They will not listen to you because we've been positioned to be at the bottom in everything. Mm-hmm. So I have seen that. Much as you have this idea that's going to develop this organization, no one will listen to you. How can a black woman speak to a white woman on something that, that you have skill or knowledge on? They'll be like, no. I mean, how did you learn that? Where did you get the expertise to tell me what to do? Who are you to even ask me that I shouldn't do this? Right. You know, I mean, are you qualified? But in the sense, you are. But because they have put us to this standard of right. being in the law standard all the time, so there's no way you can discuss this. But come to think of it, the best books have been written by like black women are really powerful. And we see them being where you have a book, Leila, I'll need to, to get that copy to read through. And we've seen so many books, inspirational books, which are teaching white women on what they should do. Mm. But who is acknowledging? Mm. Who is? They read these books in the, like in the corridors or down their beds but they're learning something, but they'll never come out to say that this black woman has inspired me in this book. See, how many black women are in the New York bestseller? How many? Right. Let's look at that. Yeah. Now, white women, even if they've written a book Mm. that is really, there's nothing really much in the book, they'll be on New York bestseller. But a black woman Mm. who has written a book with a lot of content in it, can never be up there. Why? Because this is what they think that we should be at the bottom all the time. We shouldn't be on the top. I have seen this on so many occasions. Like, we've been put... Our voices have been silenced. Yeah. Our voices have been silenced. And every time, I think I tell people that when I get the chance to shout something, I want the world to hear. If I get the opportunity... To let the world hear from a black woman or a Ugandan woman or African woman, I want to scream so that people can get to hear my voice. Yeah. Because so long our voices have been silenced. You know, you can never stand up and say something, especially with even the work that we do. Uh, people feel that black women cannot challenge whiteness. Oh, you cannot. Who are you to say that? Who are you to tell me that? i racist. Who are
0: you? I mean, where'd you get the power? So they have taken that power from us. That even comes out in the way that people will say this account is only run by a white person. I'm like, literally, it is all black women and, and one white person. They'll say, like, it's not just even black white people. It'll move. <laughs> <And> like, <laughs> so like you can see how many videos, how many interviews, how many yeah. with Olivia and with, and like, but. That is white supremacy, right? That idea that this, the ability to articulate the ability, the unapologetic way that we challenge it, I think is so different from what people expect or or anticipate that they're just like, of course, oh, this must be a white woman doing this. Like, like right. it's just so, oh man,
1: we know what it is, though. We know what that is. Right. It happens often. Right. So for people who are, have never heard of no white saviors, what is the sort of birth story of No White Saviors. How did you come together? How was it born?
0: On a fateful day at a clinic in Jinja, I was holding a black baby.
1: (laughs) This is real.
0: Like when we talk about white saviorism, man, I was in it. And I thought I was different because I had talked about anti race I had like taken an anti-racism course in undergrad and I had, you know, had black friends and like all the things that you're like, I grew up and I wasn't in just this like white bubble that a lot of other white people I knew were. And I was, I voted for Obama and I'd come to Uganda and I wasn't just there for a short time and taking selfies with random kids. So I was different, right? I went and got my undergrad degree. But like, that is what we were so famous for with like within the anti-racism world as white women. is like being able to say, well, eh, that's not me. So Olivia met me in my peak white saviorism. And you want to take it from there? <laughs> yeah, so... I have a
3: son, he's called different names. And that time he was sick and went to this clinic and he was sitting, his blood sample was taken. So I'm sitting holding him and carrying him. And then I see a white woman carrying this black child. And I'm like, mmm. I looked at them, then for a while, I'm like, okay, let me go and ask her. Then I asked her. So what's wrong with the child? And so, oh, this child is here to take on tests and they're sick. And okay, what do you do? And how come you have this child? What do you do in Uganda? Because I was, I grew up seeing white people in Ginger mm-hmm. moving with black children. So I said, all right, this is the opportunity for me to ask this white woman what they're doing with this child. So when I when I asked Gelse, she was like, okay, we have this organization that we, we're running in uh, place Port Bougain, it's out of Ginger Town, and this is what we do. We, we keep children in families. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. Then I told her, I actually want to see more of your work. What do you do? What is there? And she's like, Oh, you're welcome. And she asked me, What do you do? I said, I'm such a social worker, I'm very professional. I just had my baby and I've been caring for him. It is now a year. So, but I'm, I'm available if there's work because she told me, oh, we are hiring a social worker. I'm like, okay, fine. I will check on the work that you guys do. And then this is how we started. So I went to see the organization. I saw it and I started working with Kelsey and that time she was my boss, you know, she, as she was. Yes.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And as we work together, there's so many things that I saw personally as Libya and I addressed them. I mm-hmm. told her, I called them on most occasions and said, Kelsey, I think this is how we do this. In Uganda, we, we don't eat posh and beans the whole week. No. And they did know this because they knew, oh, this was food. I said, no, we don't eat food. Like for a whole week, I was not going to the kitchen to get food. And they asked me, what is it, Olivia? I said, uh-uh, I don't eat portion beans the whole week. They said, okay, but these people didn't tell us. They were quiet. I said, okay. Um they said, what should we do? So we turned the menu and people started eating food that they wanted. They wanted mm. some meat. They wanted mm. some beef. So it changed because I talked to them and they listened. So as we worked together, I had very complicated cases on my workload, and I worked with different families, and then a turning point came around when I had to leave, and the reasons, I have like three reasons why I left, because I used to leave my son with a maid home, but then I would find so many things messed up, and yeah. I wanted to work there for him, yeah. and also, there was a white girl in the organization that was treating Ugandans poorly. And she was like, oh, they're paying you highly. She was all the time telling you guys, oh, you need to do this work. You need to do that work. But then the she says she didn't have any qualification in any field, you know, any field. So I called it out. I think I addressed it with girls. I said, no, we don't like the way this woman addresses us. We don't like it because she comes to a meeting and she tells us that from today, you're going to be doing this. And then she asks us, what do you think? And I'm like, what do we think? You've already decided what we should do. So I I saw, and then what was so difficult was that the organization had two people, two founders of the organization. So the, the other side was in favor of this white girl. And... Me as Olivia, I was not bigger than the organization. No, I was not bigger than the organization. So I said, okay, I need to protect my conscience. I don't want to see this happen.
2: Yeah.
3: And then I had support from my husband, even mm-hmm. when we do this work, I really have support from him. So I sat down and discussed it with him. I said, now I think this is the time to leave. And My husband supported me because even the day I was going to put in my resignation letter, he put me in his car, drove me, and went with me. Mm. And then I had it there Mm -hmm. because he supports me. I said, okay, if this is what you feel, if this is what your heart feels and your conscience, then I'm supporting you 100%. So I left the organization. And after some time, Kelsey also left. I actually left only a few months after her. Yeah, so she also yeah. left, but then we we continued like talking, mm. talking and keeping the conversations. And also, this would have been
0: twenty fifteen. Yeah,
3: around yeah twenty fifteen. And also seeing that Kelsey was now opening up and discussing openly about. What she had seen, and she continues to say that she is part of the problem, and she'll still be part of the problem. So, by her addressing some of these things, got me thinking. I'm like, okay, she gets it, she mm-hmm. understands it, because even way back when we had issues, I would tell her, say, "Kelsey, look, this is not supposed to be like that. This is not supposed to be like that." But then, this was an organization that was funded by a church. And one of the founders was a daughter of a pastor from the Mm -hmm. church where the funds were coming from. So there there was nothing I would do. It was bigger than me. And so some decisions were hard to make. Mm. You know, they were hard to make because... So I said I moved away, and then I stayed in contact with Kelsey. She started posting about it. So we kept the relationship, and we we were talking, we were discussing this day, and, and then Sharon, she's a Ugandan in Finland. She also started up an organization in Ginger. She went through so much. As a Ugandan woman, opening up an organization, you're, you're not on standard with the white people. So white people have to fight you on that. You're not doing things right where you're corrupt. That is one thing. You're corrupt, mm. you know, that kind of thing. And this, so is, such a, this-,
1: this is such an African stereotype, right? Of the corrupt yeah. African, right? Yeah.
3: So after such conversations, we say we need space to begin talking about this. We need space to, to hold people accountable for the things that they think they do in the dark. Yeah. But we actually in this darkness. We are there. Yeah. So we should just open up these curtains and the light comes through for the world to see that these things are actually happening so they were so normalized. Yeah, in general, it was so normalized. It like, still
0: is, but it's getting less. So that's
3: giving <laughs> yourself a much more salary, and also thinking that you can replace Ugandans at your own because someone has come in and said, "Hey, Leila, you are doing this," and you're like, "Oh, if you don't want the job, you can leave. I can replace you." You're not that kind of right. thing. So we all saw this and started discussing on Facebook, and then we said, okay. And then it came as a hashtag, you know what's serious, and this is how it all
0: started. So we started from there up to where we are right now. We could never believe, like, if you to- if anyone told us a year ago this is where things would be, and that, like, we would be sitting and talking to you, no. or we'd have an Instagram following of 211,000, we were like, oh, like, a few hundred. We were like, Wow. wow. <laughs> it's so like, you just don't, we did not know people would respond and care about what we were talking about in the way that we were seeing. Mm. So we actually didn't, but the
3: world will take this as a serious issue, as something to learn from. We didn't know that this platform would actually be a free platform where people would feel safe to express themselves. There's so many people. We didn't know that there are many people who had so much to share, but they yeah. didn't have what to share from. So, most of these things, we've just seen them coming now and we said, okay, this is what mm-hmm. we started, but we actually didn't know what we had started.
1: Yeah. So I think that's so important what you're saying though about like that you didn't know what it would become because I think you see people who have a platform, who have a following, whatever it is that they have, right? And you think, well, you know, that was just a clear line for them. They must've gone A, B, C, D to get to where they are. And the truth is it started just as a conversation between you two because of stuff that happened at work. Well, even before that, it started as you saw a white woman holding a black baby and you were like what's happening here, (laughs) right? And then this winding winding path to, you know, where you are now and who knows where, you know, it's going from here, a year from now where No White Saviors is going to be. I think it's an incredible story. And I think for everyone listening, you know, if I was listening to the podcast and as I'm listening to you, I'm just thinking of how important it is to use our voices no matter where we are. Because you don't know who it could be inspiring. You don't know who you could be educating. You don't know who you could be affecting or whose mind you could be changing. And in the end, whose life you could be saving, really.
0: I mean, there literally have been lives affected. And a lot of people don't realize the severity of what white saviorism is
1: capable of. So could you define for people who are not familiar with what is a white savior? Am I not allowed to go to Africa and go and volunteer? What is white saviorism? I'm
0: white and I live in Uganda. <laughs> I, I so I think it's it very, mean. like, or we could go with the textbook definition or we yeah. could go with, like, Teju Cole wrote a really incredible piece. For anyone listening, we... I'll link
1: heard. to that piece in your in your show notes by Teju Cole. That's yeah, it's so
0: good. He wrote about the Coney 2012 and that's something that we reference a lot because that was such a clear example. And we actually have dialogued with Jason and Russell. What's sad about seeing like the potential someone has to be able to learn from their mistakes and say, you know what, what we're asking is not to have perfection because we're not perfect human beings. We're not perfect in this, I say white savior recovery. Cause it is like recovering from a type of addiction or it's like, because our egos are fed by it. Right. And so There is a level of its racism and white supremacy and the way that we are falsely educated about all the propaganda fed to us, especially in Western countries. The lies that were fed about the continent of Africa, um, about predominantly black countries that have been overexploited and formerly colonized. I don't even like to say formerly colonized, it's like colonization never ended, it just changed forms. Because in so many ways, that's still going on through foreign policy, through the big foreign aid that, you know, exists in the relationship. The West has so much control over the majority of the continent still. And so when I look at white saviorism, I know that but <laughs> to define white saviorism, it's so wrapped up in that indoctrination and in that propaganda that we're fed about, this very flat narrative that Uganda or Africa as a whole is poor, corrupt, underdeveloped, and in need of our saving. And until a white person comes in and intervenes, it's this dark continent. It's hopeless. It's in despair. And it's, it's that permeates not just the like UNSF or USAID commercials, but it's in the literature. It's in the movies. It's in the books that get published. It's in our, our education system. So it's in our churches, you know, the way people talk about going on missions and it's, you're glorified. And I grew up in the white evangelical church in the U.S. and I know the level of like glorification that I received. And I wasn't even like, I wasn't even like a good missionary because like I was liberal. I voted for Obama. Like I was not good in terms of like being a white evangelical, but even like, it was almost like it canceled it out because I was the white girl going to Uganda. You could literally come here and do anything. And if people back home in America know you're coming here, they just assume you're saving People like they just assume you're saving people that you're inherently doing something good, and the truth is, a lot of us are taking very real advantage of that because the assumption of our innocence, of our inherent morality, of us being inherently beneficial, is so dangerous, man. It's we can get hung up on the selfies and the things like that, um, which are important. It's important to talk about the fact that we even feel entitled and like we can just come into a community and take photos of children without asking or without consent. But that's like, in terms of like the real severity of what white saviorism is capable of, it's rooted in the same place of Renee Bach, who will get into coming to Uganda and feeling like she could practice medicine on children without any formal medical trainings. I think it's more sinister because of the fact that it's, it's disguised in charity and humanitarian work and Doing good, but it really is just such a clear manifestation of racism and white supremacy. I think in some ways it can be harder to combat because people like myself can disguise it and justify it by saying, "But I'm doing good and with our good intentions, right?" So we're able to bypass it and say, "Well, and that's only a luxury given to white folks." Um, right. I've never seen anyone else get that type of like, like get out of jail card. Essentially, oh well, you you're white and you kill. 100 plus children but you meant well and god called you so i guess it's not that but yeah sorry if that was not a very it was not very
1: concise no that was that was great a big part of my heritage is east african the other part is middle eastern and so but i grew up in the uk and i wasn't born in africa i didn't i hadn't traveled to africa like that i'm aware of to have memories of until i was a little bit older went as a baby, but I don't have those memories. But I know that my first understanding of Africa was seeing comic relief ads, was seeing things, you know, on the TV, like we need to help the poor starving Africans. And so I grew up in a, as a little black girl in a very white community. And so I know that a lot of my own process of coming to form my self-identification was very complicated. And so I can remember a time, even when I was like, let's say 18, 19 years old, when I was like, maybe I want to do a gap year. Maybe I want to travel to South America or Africa to go and do volunteer work. Like I want to go do good in the world. I'm black. (laughs) And it's that same concept of, because I'm from the Western world, that somehow I need to go to these countries to save these people, to help them. And so often the intention is not that in your mind, right? The intention is not that for a lot of people, but that's really what's behind it. It's the conditioning and the understanding of what do these black and brown countries look like? You know, what is their economy like? Everyone is poor, apparently. It's the dark continent, apparently. And we're not shown... The technology, the culture, the architecture, the how so much of what we consider modern civilization today is born from there. And so it's been interesting for me, sort of reflecting on my past, you know, because as you said, absolutely no one's perfect and nobody woke up woke, right? Like nobody was born knowing everything. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh. It's interesting though, because white saviorism is this. Space where white supremacy and religion often meet. So, you talked about your evangelical background. I know that a lot of white saviorism tends to stem from, when we're talking about Africa and missionary work, coming from evangelical Christians who are wanting to serve Jesus and yeah. do good. And I want to make very clear to anyone listening this is not a critique on anyone's religion or religious beliefs or anything like that. But I think it's very important for us to really take a critical look at how do religious beliefs that are steeped in white supremacy contribute and cause such terror. It's not just the dehumanization of going into countries like this and thinking that you know better than the people on the ground, right? Like it's not just at that level. Children are actually dying. So you mentioned the case of Renee Back, and maybe you can talk a little bit about that for people who are not familiar with this case.
3: Yeah. She's a missionary, I think up to now. She came to Uganda at the age of 18, and what she writes, she says she had a call from God to come to Uganda. So she started with them, I think being a volunteer with some in some orphanage in Jinja, She started a feeding program to feed children in the community.
1: And and I'm like,
3: yes, this was a good idea. Yes, feeding children, yes. Children need food, yeah, this is a good thing. And then with time, she developed the love of treating children going beyond. And she started treating Ugandan children with no medical practice. And doing all these clinical experiments on children cannulating them, transfusing blood, and all sorts of medical, you know, activity. And let us look where she comes from. She comes from God's call. This is where, every time I ask myself, I'm like, why will God call black people or African people to go to America? And I yes. uh, you know, and I, I went for that day. That's the truth, later. Like, everyone
1: went <laughs> No. No. I never no. thought about that. I never thought about that.
3: Honestly, so I'm like, God, the God of justice, the God of everyone, the God who loves everyone, yeah. risks everybody in their dreams. But I'm like, when is this God coming to my ears and telling me, Olivia, it's just time to pack your bags and go to the United States and begin this work, you know? Maybe I went to your spam inbox. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, so everybody comes to Africa, uh, and most times in the name of God, and, and after such harm, people stand and say, but she was doing good. And, okay, yes, if things did go wrong with so many children were helped, but let us look at the children who died, if it was back in Virginia or anywhere in Europe, will they accept that? They would right. not. Right. You're still in prison. But because Africa is being seen as a playground where right. you can't stand and like practice on black bodies and, and just go because our bodies are meant to be ex- experimented on by white folks. Like they can look at the slave trade where people are paraded and you know, their bodies checked and is this real? Is that colour real? And Women were undressed in London to see Sarah Batman, the way she looked and you know, have everything. So this all relates back to how we were being viewed. And people have this mentality has non stopped. It's right. just growing. It's just growing within. Like you have to go to Africa to test and see if these are really human beings. Right. You know, but serving a God wow. that is a God of equality that sees us, Black people, in the same picture as God. But it gives me so many questions that in most times I ask myself, that is, is the God that white people serve the same God as we serve? Because if it was the same God, mm. then they wouldn't be doing some of the things that they do here they would have that fear and saying, oh, we serve the same God as the black people, as the Ugandans. But then I think there's now a lot of standard in the gods we serve. The God of white people is above everything, is above everyone. It's not an equal God because if it was if we were the same in the face of God, then people would not be using the Bible to oppress other people.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Religion is such a powerful tool. Honestly, supremacy.
3: because if you <clears throat> if we get down to the Bible and people saying that okay you, you can have the little that be happy with the little that you mm-hmm. have. Be happy with the little that you have but in the sense, people who are telling you this earning more than you. Are living in very nice houses in very beautiful compounds, driving cars. But when it comes to you as a black pastor, you have
0: to go by the Bible, just leave off the little you have and be happy. Yeah. You know? Isn't that so convenient to like say like be happy with what you have because I have the excess and it's at your expense. So God is gonna bless you in the afterlife. Meanwhile, I'm blessed on your to your deficit here.
3: Yeah, so, yes. so with such people like Renee, let's look at where all this comes from. It all starts from God's goals mm-hmm. and then down it comes to Africa. And when they reach here, they get mm-hmm. to our people in the villages, like the most vulnerable people, the moms, you know, because if it's my aunt in the village, they'll not question when they see girls walking in the village and portraying herself as a doctor, they'll be happy because this is what we've been made to believe, that white people are always right. Right. Which is so wrong. Like, they're always right. Even if she tells you something, it is the right answer. So people in in our villages, our grandparents, when they see white people, because this is what is in their mind, a white person has something good to offer. They bring in something good to the community. And they don't see a reason why they would question it because they know white people are always right. So such people like Renee back have taken advantage of these people in the villages because there's no way, you can't do this back in America, but in Africa you can do it because no no one is going to ask you, you know? Because people are like, okay, why did they accept her to do that? The community didn't say anything. But what do you expect those moms in the village to say? Right. If you find my child really sick. Yes. And I see this white woman portraying herself as a doctor. Right. I'll just be happy to hand over my child to you because I've seen a savior. Please going to? So most people get to target the most vulnerable populations in Africa. And we should not forget that. Why don't people who open up organizations like that do it in the city centers? Mm. Why? Because they not hear people who stand to them. And or in ask their own countries.
2: Them. Like, also, why don't we do this in our
3: own countries? Yeah, right? That's why I'm like, you can't get away with. Yes, in most times people who come here and say, okay, what do you say about the people, white people who want to do good when they come to Uganda? And my answer will always be the same. What you cannot do back in your country, don't do it here. Yes. Don't. That is what I always say. You know, it is wrong back home. Why do you think it's right this side?
0: Right. Why? That should be such a wild concept, should right. it? It should not be, but it is for so many. Yeah, so people like. Renee, Babs, let's
3: look at that, where they come from. Every person that I think I've read most of the people who start up NGOs here, I received the call from God. This is my vision. This is what I need to do. I need to save Africa. I need to change lives. This is what you all get. It's all connected to God. But then we're asking ourselves, let us like, touch out and see, is this the real God working in these organizations when you have your mom as the director in the U.S. board, you have your sisters, it's a family thing, and when it comes here, you position your guidance in positions that are just so, for sure, there's no decision they make. Right. So I'm just looking, when we get to God, we're like, is your God working in everything that you're doing here? But you find out that's why I always question, I'm like, is there is a different God for white people and black people at this point in time because I have seen it here. I've seen it in Uganda, how people want to make it normal for white people to earn more than black people. They want they want us to feel it is okay with the Bible to treat Ugandans the way they treat them, to right. pay them the way they to speak to them the way they speak to them because Leila, for sure, in this country, if you're working with a white person, it is very hard to get a Ugandan who will talk back.
2: Mm.
1: Right. It is hard. Right. Yeah. So, thank you for saying that because you you just reminded me of a thought I had earlier when you were talking about when you were working in the same organization as Kelsey and that you were actually bringing these things to the table and saying, you know what, this isn't okay, or this isn't right, or this isn't the way that we do things, and I. As I was listening to you, I was like, that probably took a lot of courage to say that because there could have been very negative consequences for you.
3: Exactly. But it took really a lot of courage when I talked to them. But I think it's also one point gives them a challenge seeing a black Ugandan woman talking. Yeah. Yeah squeaking out and saying, no, we don't want this food. So they also got to know the background that they're actually Ugandans who have grown up in in a middle-class like life where they see these things, like they eat good food when it comes, they eat fish, they eat that kind of thing. So this was also an eye-opener to them to show them that, okay, much as we thought that everyone, you know, needs, you know, the saving and the help and that kind of thing, but there are still people here who are actually living a life that we didn't know about because they came knowing that whoever we met in Uganda will definitely, they need the help and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And also it takes a lot of courage because so many Ugandans cannot speak out
1: because they need their jobs. Absolutely. And that's real. That's Very real.
2: It is
3: real. You cannot tell that to your boss. But I think the way we understand, I think maybe the world understood it and the passion that I put in the work that I do has always given me the courage because I look at myself and say, it takes a lot to make some decisions in life, but then you have to make them. Mm
2: -hmm. It's
3: always the best or the worst. So it took me time to actually think because when I told Kelsey and Megan that I was resigning. They said, no, you, you can think about it. I said, okay, I will think about it. And I don't always go to church, but I remember I told them that I'll go to church. This time around, I'll go to church and see if it's the right decision that I'm making. So I remember it was not an easy one to make because this is work that I always wanted to do. I mm-hmm. wanted to be in the community. I wanted to be with people. I wanted to work with families. And it was interesting. It was, I loved the job. I loved the work. But much as I loved it, I said, okay, I love this. But I think also for my conscience, a hundred years from now, whether I'm in hell or heaven, I don't want to regret anything. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was a hard decision, but I made it. And I think also in this work, the support of people that we have around us is very important because this was a decision that I made. That I spoke to my husband and I thought was going to be like, mm, mm-hmm. you know, but he said, if this is what you're, you're seeing and if this will give you a free man, then I will support you. So also the support we have from people around us making these decisions is very helpful because I I don't regret now that I made that decision years ago. I don't. I can speak proudly to that and say, yes, I decided and left. Right. You know, something I'm proud of. Even when I go to sleep, I say, yes, I decided on what I felt was right, and it made me stronger. It made me strong. It made me realize that there's a time in my life that I will stand and make a decision that will be stronger than this one.
0: And there have been harder decisions since, I think, with our work now. Would you say there have been harder? Yeah,
3: because with this work, obviously I have a family, I have my son, I have my husband, and taking on this work is a lot. I know that you have this family, you have your kids around, they need you. Yeah. So standing in to do this work when I have a family, I have a son, I have my husband who has supported me all the way, and I decide to continue doing this work much as we, we travel a lot, we have meetings, is also a hard decision, but I made it. Yeah. I made because this is something I'm passionate about. And even if it's two years or three years and they left of sin, I made a decision that I feel proud about. So, but it's not easy.
2: No. I remember.
3: It's not easy. No. For someone, I remember when I was talking to my dad, ago about it. I said, but do you know what that means when you leave work? and my father told me something i said that is a strong decision to make because you have you have cut yourself out when you needed work but then at the same time this is a brave decision even my dad still talks about it and it's like that was a hard decision but you made it Mm. So people like Olivia are not men in this country. you will not get them because we need to feed our families. Yes. We need to feed our children. So you will stay in that system of oppression, even when you feel that I want to live, but you cannot. I need to stay here because I need to feed my family. But then mm-hmm. as we we grow with this work. What I want people to know is that stop putting people in those systems of oppression because you know they don't have where to go. Yeah, Stop. Stop threatening people when it comes to someone addressing an issue and you say, okay, I am the boss. So if if you don't want to leave, no one wants to leave work when they have a family to feed. So my Message out there to people, top leadership, white. Always remember that every time that black voice doesn't speak, you're oppressing them. They feel it. They cannot speak, right. but oppressing them. There's too much pain when someone doesn't say anything. So I think this has to stop. This is a message to the world, to people out there. Listen to People, I know feedback is hard to take, especially if you're a boss. It is hard, but let's try to get different methods of engaging Ugandans or African people in sharing, in being free to share in spaces. Because for me, I, I can stand for myself, but then what about that aid worker who cannot say anything?
0: Yeah, who can?
3: Yeah, because most of us are not safe. Sales. Most of us are not
0: safe people to come to. Yeah, and the relationship,
3: Leila, the relationship between your boss, who's white, and the Ugandan—you you don't have that relationship. Come
1: no. on. No, and just because a black person, an African person, isn't saying oh. something, doesn't mean that everything's all cool and all okay. I know you're talking about specifically in in Uganda and and across the African continent, but this is globally. You know, anti-blackness is global, and then. As you're talking, I'm like, okay, this is so important for white people to understand. When you're coming into any situation, we're talking about aid workers right now or missionary workers coming into the African continent to volunteer, to help, to do whatever it is that they're there to do. You have to remember, you're not just coming in as the single individual person. You're coming with the whole entire weight of the history of what it means to be white, to have a colonial history. And in the present day, still have that power dynamic that's at play. That's what's there. You're not dealing Mm -hmm. with, it's not Kelsey and Olivia, two people on an equal playing field, right? It's Kelsey coming in with the weight of all of that and the threat and the risk of her white privilege, her white fragility, white ignorance, making her either... I'm using Kelsey as an example here but using you know being inadvertently or intentionally harmful to black and brown people. And that's true in so many different situations. The fact that so many white saviors are coming into Africa to use Africa as their playground essentially whether it's to discover themselves or to discover what are black people and can I try this out on them. It really it's gross. It's disgusting. And it's, it's violent, is what it is. It's dehumanizing. Um, so, the work that you're doing is so important. In terms of the organization No White Saviors, where do you want to take this conversation next? You know, you're already really challenging a lot of people's ideas, a lot of people's thoughts. You're unapologetic in the way that you show up and use your voices, and you educate so many people. Where is like another route that you want to get at with this white saviorism?
3: What we look up to now is that we want to see other chapters open up in different countries around the world. We want people to hold these discussions in their home countries. We want people to lead. We want them to lead these discussions because I think it's important in every community. The work doesn't have to stop here in Uganda. We want it to go around the world. And if we addressing these issues here in Uganda, then someone listening to me from any part of the world can also address these issues starting from their communities. And this is how we are going to challenge the white savior complex by getting back to our communities and creating this awareness. So we want to see many no white savior like chapters opened up around the world because no white saviors at this point in time is bigger than Kelsey, Olivia and the other team members. So we want this to be an example to even even the white people that before you start doing something fast from your home and then spread the love and then the love will be felt around the world. So this is what we're trying to do. We started home here in Uganda and we want to see this. We want to see this spread in every part of the world because we're not going to be everywhere. We Mm. can't be everywhere. And, so all we can do is that people can take from our model on how we do things and start this back home. Because this is this is a continuous process. It's not going to end with me or Kelsey. It is something that we want to see grow for generations. It is a movement that we started. Not knowing where it would go, but now that we've seen the direction it is taking, we want it to be a global
0: movement around the world. I love that. And I think that's one of our biggest priorities right now is to see it grow, not only globally, but also within Uganda, that it's more accessible to more people, right? Is that we can spend all this time on social media. And I think, honestly, this is something we talk about a lot within our work is that a lot of times, any type of activism, especially now within like the social media era, is there's still a level of privilege with all of us involved in it, right? And it's different different levels of privilege, different cross-sections and intersections of privilege. But if we're on social media, if we're able to read and write and articulate and all of that, there is a lot of privilege involved in just being able to be in those spaces and be able to to vocalize these things in the quote-unquote right way. And I think that is one of the biggest deficits to any type of activism work right now. And I, I'm wanting to be very self-critical of ourselves too. Of like, okay, this is great, but also how are we making sure that people who are the most affected, because often I think the most affected populations, most affected people by any form of oppression are going to be the people that are the least able to access some of these conversations, right? Is that, it's not that they're, because we have this monopoly on what intellectualism looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it can be really dangerous. And we've talked about that as a team, because we noticed it a lot. And I think that a lot of it comes out in if people don't have the right language to use, because even when you see people, and it's not just here in Uganda, it's, I think it's a global issue that a lot of times if people don't have the right language to use or the ability to articulate these ideas. It's a very different scenario when you have a white person or a person of any level of privilege coming into a space and saying, I don't want to learn. I don't want to hear from you. I just want to tell you what I believe. It's another when someone might say something not politically correct or that could be seen as offensive because their language might not be up to date. But that is a huge level of in just like elitism and yeah, pretentiousness within a lot of these spaces that I think we can all fall into is that, okay, if you don't have the right language then you're not welcome to the conversation. And there's a lot of really incredibly important voices that are being left out that we don't get to hear from because they don't even feel like they can talk about it or they're you know we're not even bringing these conversations into places where they will be able to engage. And so that's one of, I think, mm. while growing it globally, I think also growing it in the sense that people from all different backgrounds, regardless of where you are, that it could be more accessible. So that looks like Written and I think auditory, like whether it's in like local languages here on radio uh-huh. programs or different ways of sensitizing, and obviously that's not going to be me, and because of the rapid growth of our, our work, it's not going to be Olivia either, but it's going to be people that we bring in on the team and that's been one of like the two women that we just started working with recently and that we brought onto the team. One of the biggest pieces of feedback for them was like, how can we see more? Ugandan and East African people involved in the conversation because right now it feels like we're very focused on Uganda but like our following is very global and so it's great and it's awesome that it has that reach but it's also important I think to figure out okay but how many people in Uganda are not engaging or able to engage in this conversation.
1: Yeah because you know you talk, think about how No White Saviors started and you've had this very rapid growth and and I can really relate to that because I had that really fast trajectory and you kind of have to sit back and go, hold on, I thought I was just doing an Instagram challenge and now it's, you know, a book, you know? like (laughs) (laughs) So it's, I'm sure, very similar with, with No White Saviors where it's just had this rapid trajectory and sometimes, you know, the journey kind of gets ahead of you and you're like, you have to stop and say, hold on now now that I'm seeing, now that we are seeing what it's becoming, where do we intentionally want to take it? What are our responsibilities here? What do we have the power to be able to do here and to be able to like really consciously choose the direction that you're going in? You're absolutely right. It's amazing to get that global public sort of awareness to your work. And I completely hear you about making sure that the most vulnerable and the most affected and the least able to access the kind of things that you're actually, you know, sharing are getting the help because that's really who it's for at the end of the day.
0: I can imagine that it resonates a lot with your work too. And I think you can really identify people who are very committed to the on the ground and the real, real change. And in terms of community, that's so important too, is that we we are not in a, in a bubble. And I think that there's can often be this competition for who has the most followers and who has the, who's getting the next book deal and who, but it's like, if we're really about the work, I want to see 10 more books from Layla. Like I haven't, yeah. we haven't even read the first one, one, but like I want to see 10 more before we even get yeah. a book, you know, like because it's about the work and it's about
1: seeing this stuff change. And in that case, and it takes all yeah. different yeah. methods at all different yeah. levels. Yeah.
0: Yes. We're all going to respond to things differently and we're all built to address different avenues. And I think that's so important to understand the different skill sets and the different people brought to the table. It's like a puzzle of how to actually fight this. White supremacy is complex, right? And it's had a lot. It's had over 400 years. It's had hundreds of years to establish itself and become this very complex. And people don't like hearing that it's sophisticated. But over time, the more it's been exposed, the more sophisticated and covert in different areas white yeah. supremacy has had to become. So we have to be sophisticated and strategic in the way we approach it.
1: I love what you were saying, Olivia, about wanting to see chapters pop up because I can imagine those chapters mm. would be so helpful first for preventing white saviors from coming over, mm. right? Do yeah. education first. Yeah. Are you thinking about going to Africa to do volunteer work Come along to this meetup, and come and learn something, right? <laughs> oh, okay. you would
0: get labeled as a cult real quickly.
1: <laughs> but I think that's so important, doing that work there before they even come over and, and do harm. And then also, mm. you said, Kelsey, earlier about you know white saviors in recovery, so people who have realized, oh, like, I went and I thought that this was my intention, and I thought this was what was going to happen, and I realize I've actually mm-hmm. caused all this harm what do I do with this now? And No White Saviors is absolutely bigger than the two of you and bigger than your team. I know that there are team members in No White Saviors who are not public or not here in this Mm. interview, but there are a number of you and it will continue to grow. And it's so much bigger than where it came from and it will continue to have this ripple effect across the world in so many different ways. So I'm very honored to be here, to be in this conversation with you, to have seen No White Saviors, when it was in its earlier stages, and to (laughs) see where it's going to go because this work is so, so important. So, thank you so much.
0: Thank you for having us. It's an honor because we were a fan and followers of you before we even created No White Saviors. So, it's a beautiful thing to see this community grow and to have that kind of support. So, thank you.
1: Absolutely. It's mutual. So, yeah. So, my final question. And you can choose who goes best. Yeah. <laughs> what does it mean to you to be a good okay. ancestor?
0: When I think about being a good ancestor, it means taking ownership of past mistakes, both my own and my ancestors, taking real ownership, reconciling, and committing to doing better. And not just committing to doing better, but actually doing it. Yeah, that's short and sweet to the point. <laughs> Wait. So what it means to be a good ancestor. Mm-hmm. wow.
3: I think for me, what that means to be a good ancestor is that am I leaving to the legacy of those I believe in? Mm. Did I start from where they stopped? Am I going to end somewhere and someone will pick from me? Am I still connected to that lineage of those people? Have okay. I lived a life worthy or half of what they lived? I mean, these are all questions that I'll continue to ask myself. And at that point in time, I know it will come a time and I say, yes, I'm a good ancestor. Now I can go to rest. That's yeah. Really
0: good. Your ancestor answer is so much better than mine. I liked it. Yeah.
3: <sighs> so uh, I can I, go to rest and I'm yeah.
1: I like them yes. both. And I just want to say you already are a good ancestor, but please don't go to rest. <laughs> yeah, don't go to rest. You're not allowed to be an ancestor yet. But I can tell you that the work that you are doing is you are creating an incredible legacy that you can be really proud of and be in your conscience and know that you're walking your path. Thank
3: you. Thank you.
1: thank you. you.
3: I,
0: thank you I always
3: want to get it from people We're just looking forward to reading your book. Um, Yeah, we're going to have
0: to find a way to get it to Uganda. I will get it to you. you.
1: I will get it to you.
0: Even if it comes with you on your family trip.
1: (laughs) I will hand deliver it to you.
0: We (laughs) meet you in Nairobi. We love Nairobi.
3: (laughs) We love Nairobi so much.
1: Well, thank you both so much for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I hope that this episode has helped you gain new insights and find deeper answers to what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to hear what some of your aha moments have been from this conversation. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at Good ancestor Podcast and drop us a comment to let us know what some of your biggest takeaways have been. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a good ancestor.